0: Section 2, The Synoptic Text, Notes on a Genre. Quote, As years passed, everyday usage in education slowly corrupted curriculum development into a shortened term, curriculum. This term was invested with renewed meanings which served to alter that to which it referred in practice while elevating its symbolic potency. End quote. Students ought to have a clear picture of the genre in which this textbook appears. Synoptic texts provide encyclopedic portraits of the complex socio-intellectual community, known as a field of study. They do more, however, than simply represent or capture the field as it exists at the time the text was written. Synoptic texts also articulate that field and help determine what in the field is important. In shedding light on some areas of the field to the exclusion of others, they often present a part of the field as the whole field. In representing the field in a particular way, they inadvertently give the impression that the field is their articulation of it. We are determined to avoid such misrepresentation. The tradition of synoptic curriculum texts can be said to have originated in 1935, with the publication of Caswell and Campbell's Curriculum Development. The tradition continues to be a strong one today. Note, for instance, the appearance of three synoptic texts in 1988 and 1989. Each of these textbooks attempts to give historical treatment of curriculum issues, although in more than one instance such treatment is superficial at best. Attention to the history of the field is essential as it alerts scholars and schoolpersons that curriculum issues occur in historical time and in political context. Rarely are new curriculum proposals new. For instance, the current wave of school reform echoes aspects of both the social efficiency and progressive movements of 70 years ago, as well as containing elements of 19th century classicism, movements we will report in Chapters 2 and 3. Historically informed curriculum scholars and practitioners can make more discerning choices as to their participation in politically inspired reforms. Furthermore, historically informed scholars are more likely to make contributions which will move the field forward. However, as Kleibard and others have made plain, the traditional curriculum field has been notoriously ahistorical and a-theoretical. These are not separate problems. Theoretical development requires understanding the history of the field. Due to the increasing significance of historical scholarship in the contemporary field, three chapters of this textbook are devoted to historical discourses. Students of the field need to understand that fields of study, including this one, are socio-intellectual communities, whose systematic and formalized conversations accumulate and change over time. The American curriculum field has undergone a profound shift during the past 20 years. A fundamental reconceptualization of its primary concepts, its research methods, its status, and its function in the larger field of education. This shift, we will term for convenience's sake, the reconceptualization, occurred during the decade of the 1970s. We will examine that decade in Chapter 4. Some have debated whether or not this shift was paradigmatic. By paradigm, we mean the constellation of rules, domain assumptions, theories, discourses, and values that govern and shape a discipline at a particular historical moment. In simpler terms, a paradigm is a general mindset or perspective which dictates, for example, in which directions research might go, what constitutes legitimate knowledge, and who is a legitimate speaker for the field. We would say that the curriculum field has experienced a paradigm shift similar, for example, to that undergone in the humanities during the previous two decades as those disciplines, especially literary theory, changed to include feminist scholarship and its theory and continental philosophies. That is not to say that these changes did not contain within them elements of previous discourse systems. Indeed, we see, for example, in contemporary curriculum scholarship echoes of earlier child-centered, progressive, and social efficiency themes in several contemporary discourses. Phenomenological Scholarship, Chapter 8, for instance, captures child-centered concerns, while Political Scholarship, Chapter 5, recalls the work of George S. Counts. Racial Scholarship, Chapter 6, recalls the work of black historians and cultural theorists like W.E.B. Du Bois and Horace Mann Bond and, in its central concepts, such as identity, reconfigures strands of political, phenomenological, post-structuralist, and feminist discourses. The interest in social efficiency lives still in many current institutional curricular schemes, as we will see in the section on school reform in Chapter 13. Perhaps the most serious problem today in American synoptic textbooks is their relative neglect of contemporary research and scholarship in the curriculum field. Few textbooks available now, William Schubert's Curriculum, Perspective Paradigm and Possibility is a relative exception, seek to portray the contemporary field with any degree of comprehensiveness. Comprehensiveness means having the attribute of comprising or including much of large content or scope. It also is characterized by mental comprehension, that which grasps or understands. While several curriculum textbooks, mentioned scholarly developments since 1970 these developments receive insufficient attention even state of the field issues of scholarly journals issues which attempt to assess the progress of the field remain partial how can we account for this irresponsible neglect of contemporary discourses we believe the answer has to do in part with the paradigm shift of the 1970s in which the american field was reconceptualized from a field preoccupied with curriculum development, to the contemporary field in which understanding curriculum is the central aspiration. Such a shift does not occur without pain and anger. Why? When a field shifts from one major paradigm to another, many scholars are left with allegiances to concepts no longer pertinent. There is a temptation to ignore contemporary developments and to retreat into a nostalgia for the field no longer present. Daniel and Laurel Tanner's History of the School Curriculum is an example. This book is an excellent, if truncated, history of the field, as it fails to record the paradigm shift of the 1970s. But for many scholars, who have come of age during or after the Reconceptualization, 1969-1979, to 1979, it is not simple allegiance to the past, which is to blame for ignoring the present. It is ideological commitments and the political struggle for ascendancy in the field still in formation. However, for those curriculum specialists whose intellectual coming of age occurred during the earlier paradigm of curriculum development, it is not ideological commitment that clouds their vision. For these often older scholars, the reconceptualization was experienced as a personal rebuke. Generational conflict is not, we noted, the only reason for the failure to treat the field of curriculum comprehensively. Ideological and intellectual commitments sometimes lure scholars away from impartiality and comprehensiveness to narrowness and dogmatism. Political scholars have been criticized for ideological insularity. Phenomenological and post-structuralist scholars sometimes view their traditions as complete in themselves. Feminist scholars sometimes regard gender as traditional Marxists viewed the means of production the fundamentally constituent element of all understanding. While we cannot hope to persuade ideologues to treat all major contemporary discourses with fairness, we can make the effort to do so. In this textbook, we work to present impartially each of these sectors of scholarship. We aspire to point to common ground, maybe a common faith, in which different traditions and understandings can contribute to a comprehensive and inclusive understanding of the present stage of the American curriculum field. Such a project cannot, we believe, be likened to the authoritarian tendencies of so-called master narratives, which pretend to establish final truth. See chapter 9. Rather, we are engaged in an effort to present a detailed portrait of the field in which dissenting and disparate voices and traditions, grounded in history, can contribute to a more profound understanding of the contemporary curriculum field. Such an understanding would contribute to an improvement of the nation's schools if current power arrangements would permit curriculum theorists sufficient influence. The schools, to a considerable extent, are now in the hands of politicians, textbook publishers, and subject matter specialists in the university. Additionally, schools are, of course, subject to the great social and cultural problems of the day. Our influence as curriculum specialists, while potentially important, is in reality modest, as we shall see in greater detail later in this chapter. Indeed, it is reasonable to conclude that education professors are no more responsible for the present condition of the nation's schools than our business school professors for the state of the American corporation or professors of political science for the state of American politics. Probably education professors did have more influence on the workings of the school in the past than they do today, as Philip Jackson's seminal essay on this subject implies. 70 years ago, during the time of Bobbitt, Kilpatrick, and Dewey, education professors did appear to exercise more influence on large-scale curriculum development projects than it is possible to imagine today. In this regard, Daniel and Laurel Tanner observe, in understated terms, what they characterize as the teacher's shrinking space. Quote, the role of teacher as curriculum maker, they note, has not been reflected in public policymaking in recent history, end quote. Quite so. Of course, conflicting conceptions of curriculum have meant that various specialists worked in different directions, sometimes at cross-purposes thus undermining each other's efforts. However, politicians, parents, and socioeconomic forces, such as the mass immigration of 1890 to 1930 or the Great Depression, have probably always been more powerful in influencing the character of schools than have the curriculum proposals advanced by professors of education. John Dewey, the most important American philosopher of education, is said to have exerted little influence on educational practice in his day despite public controversies accompanying the progressive education movement. Particularly since the 1970s, the influence of curriculum generalists has been limited. In fact, this limitation can be cited as one catalyst for the reconceptualization of the American curriculum field in the 1970s. The traditional field, curriculum development. Perhaps because curriculum specialists did have greater access to the schools in the past, or at least wrote as if they did. Their concerns were more focused on curriculum development in and for the schools. Their writing tended to be addressed to elementary and secondary teachers and administrators, as some writing still is. Relatively speaking, there was little sense of developing a field devoted to accumulation of knowledge and to the enhancement of understanding, a field at once theoretical and historical. Moritz Johnson, expressed succinctly this core idea of the traditional field quote the majority of educationalists education practitioners and scholars active in curriculum reforms are oriented toward improvement rather than understanding action and results rather than inquiry End quote this focus upon the school curriculum and its incremental improvement delimited the horizon of the traditional field consequently We observe that the paradigm of the traditional field was curriculum development. Other scholars, such as Laurel Tanner, employ the term paradigm in reference to the Tyler rationale specifically. Others would seem to regard this period as pre paradigmatic. The use of the term paradigm seems to us not entirely unreasonable to refer to the reconceptualization. A review of the synoptic texts published during this early period roughly 1920 to 1980, reveals their preoccupation with curriculum development. From the 1920s, W.W. Charters's Curriculum Construction is illustrative. From the 1930s, H.L. Caswell and D.S. Campbell's Curriculum Development. From the 1940s, Ralph W. Tyler's Basic Principles of Curriculum and Instruction. From the 50s, Smith, Stanley, and Shores' Fundamentals of Curriculum Development. From the 60s, Hilda Taba's Curriculum Development, Theory, and Practice, and, from the 1970s, Daniel and Laurel Tanner's Curriculum Development, Theory, into Practice. Even some number of scholars whose careers were lived out within this paradigm came to see it as limited, especially when associated with the measured curriculum, for example, that curriculum which is then tested, resulting in a numeral grade which, presumably, measures learning. For such scholars, theory and practice become uncomfortably distant from one another. One major scholar termed her situation in this regard as, quote, one foot in the camp of curriculum visionaries. The other foot is in the real world where teachers and principals deal with day-to-day problems, End quote. These scholars can be said to have straddled the generational divide in the field. The Reconceptualized Field, Understanding Curriculum, The major synoptic text of the 1980s is William H. Schubert's Curriculum. Note that development has been dropped from the title, nor does development appear in the subtitle, Perspective, Paradigm, and Possibility. In the Schubert textbook, the exclusive attention to curriculum development has given way to representations of basic categories of curriculum development, for example, selection of purposes, content or learning experiences, organization, and evaluation. These categories are still consistent with the Tyler Rationale, the quintessential articulation of the curriculum development paradigm. True, in Schubert's textbook, there are chapters devoted to inquiry and, for the first time in a synoptic text, to that scholarship in the 1970s which had functioned to reconceptualize the field away from curriculum development. However, The direction of the field's movement is not completely clear in Schubert's pluralistic scheme. The Schubert textbook reflects that the field was moving toward reconceiving its function from curriculum development, a function no longer politically or institutionally available to it, to understanding curriculum. In science and mathematics education, curriculum development remains. For curriculum generalists, however, those interested in the relations among the school subjects, and their relationships to non-institutionalized elements such as race and gender, the sphere of curriculum development is much reduced. Indicative of this change is the perception of the phrase curriculum development itself. O. L. Davis has observed, quote, as years passed, everyday usage in education slowly corrupted curriculum development into a shortened term curriculum. This term was invested with renewed meanings, which served to alter that to which it referred in practice while elevating its symbolic potency, end quote. Understanding curriculum, an introduction to the study of historical and contemporary curriculum discourses, reflects the shift in the definition from curriculum as exclusively school materials to curriculum as symbolic representation. Curriculum understood as a symbolic representation refers to those institutional and discursive practices structures, images, and experiences that can be identified and analyzed in various ways, for example, politically, racially, autobiographically, phenomenologically, theologically, internationally, and in terms of gender and deconstruction. We can say that the effort to understand curriculum as symbolic representation defines, to a considerable extent, the contemporary field. We do include attention to curriculum development, not only in historical terms as a relic of a past paradigm, but as a current institutionalized or bureaucratic function. However, this phase of curriculum no longer merits the title of a synoptic textbook. In the 1990s, it is appropriate to restrict curriculum development to only one, albeit lengthy, chapter in which we hope will signal a new generation of synoptic curriculum textbooks. Curriculum development and its constituent phases, such as curriculum policy, planning, supervision, and evaluation, will be elaborated in the chapter which depicts curriculum as institutionalized text. Chapter 13. Before we describe further the organization of this book, let us review two major studies which illustrate in detail these issues of synoptic textbooks in the field they try to summarize. The first study examines carefully a series of synoptic curriculum textbooks, the series in which this present book appears.